the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The Law Offices of Selwyn Whitehead is a debt relief agency under federal law and provides legal assistance to consumers seeking debt relief under the United States Bankruptcy Code. This is Selwyn's Law. Every week at this time, we get to hear from Selwyn Whitehead. She's not just an attorney at law. Selwyn knows her stuff and doesn't shy away from the truth, even when it's ugly. Her Bay Area practice focuses on helping her clients to manage their wealth through estate and tax planning, to managing their debt through reconstruction or bankruptcy. And now, it's time for Selwyn's Law. Good day and welcome once again to Selwyn's Law. My name is Selwyn Whitehead and I'm a California Bar Admitted Attorney and I'm also a Bankruptcy Law Certified Specialist who's been certified by the State Bar of California's Board of Legal Specialization. In addition to my JD and certification, I hold a couple of master's degrees in law. That is to say, I am both a master of the laws of taxation law and a master of the laws of intellectual property law. And because of my education, my training, my experiences, my life's observations, and my lifelong interest in business and money and finance and the creation, preservation, and transfer of wealth within families and communities, including tribal communities, and the roles that these particular aspects of economics play in the lives of everyday people like you and me, I primarily practice bankruptcy law. Again, because just about every aspect of the law, dealing with property or money or just about anything, relationships, live or dead, because I have some matters that are uh, jointly probate and bankruptcy, as well as family law. As such, uh, but I also practice some related fields in my overall financial practice, including debt wealth management, estates and trusts, real estate, and of course, taxation law. Now, with these areas of law as my reference point, that is to say, as they relate to the personal, familial, community, and small business aspects of finance, I've spent the greater part of the last nearly 40 years, half before <laughs> getting my license to practice law, fighting for the economic empowerment, the economic independence, and the economic autonomy of women and people and communities of color, including indigenous people. And because I grew up as a military brat, and I always will be one, and I also helped create another one with my former spouse who was also in the military. As such, I have firsthand knowledge of just how hard it can be sometimes financially and economically for our citizen soldiers, sailors, airmen, and women and Marines and their families in our sometimes, or I gotta say mostly, less than patriotic capital-based economic system, especially after these individuals and their families separate from the service. As such, I also proudly serve veterans of all stripes and in all branches of the military. And I got to say, sometimes it seems like even though you're in the military, you're separated from it because of some of the shenanigans that are being perpetrated by one senator uh, in our Senate. But we'll talk about that more in another show. 
You know, I was raised by a dad who gave back to this country via his service in the military, who informed me unceremoniously (laughs) that I, too, had a duty to give back to my community and our society and our universe through service of some kind of my own choosing in return for impartial return for impartial payment for the great gifts God had given me. And on top of having a great father who was committed to help steer me in the right direction as I was preparing to leave his nest, I had the great fortune to know and spend a lot of time and actually became great friends with both my maternal and paternal grandmothers, both of whom survived the four great economic challenges of the last century, that is to say the Great Depression, World War II, and the systemic racism and misogyny that I got to tell you that I (laughs) interface with (laughs) through into today. And as these wonderful women helped raise me and always loved me and shared with me the great stories of their grandparents who loved and raised them in the post-Reconstruction Jim Crow South, it is out of my great love and respect for these women who are always with me in spirit urging me on along with my late father that when the situation is right through my current chosen form of service that is to say practicing the law and also talking about it and you know writing about it i'm sometimes able to at least attempt to vindicate the rights of women and seniors and the disabled who find themselves the targets of and unfortunately more and more the victims of some of the most pernicious forms of disabled adult and elder financial abuse that you could ever imagine that seems to be running rampant in our society today. So the purpose of Selwyn's Law, in case you haven't guessed it, is to discuss the law related to your money, and more than probably these days, although you might have some money <laughs> or funds set aside, generally not enough. And and we want to also talk about your overall finances and what you may need to consider to protect or reclaim or rehabilitate your or your family's or your small business's financial health, wealth, and money-related well-being as I understand these concepts in this non-threatening educational form. However, I must once again ask you to please note that this show does not provide any legal advice, nor am I developing an attorney-client relationship with anyone within the sound of my voice. Instead, this show strives strictly to serve as an educational forum for the exchange of information from me to you that might be helpful to you as you begin your search for more detailed information that's tailored to your specific set of facts and circumstances and hopefully provide you with at least an overall outline of some of the key issues that will help you seek out and find the qualified professional help I know you need if you're having a legal issue that intersects with your finances and or your assets but especially your debt. So today we're going to continue our review of our 236-year-old U.S. Constitution by continuing our discussion of Article 1, Section 9, Clause 7 of that great piece of paper that deals with our fiscal appropriations process. And as it's stated in the negative, that is to say, the powers that are denied Congress. And it states, and I It says, no money shall be drawn from our treasury, but in consequence of appropriations made by law and a regular statement of accounts and receipts and expenditures of all public money shall be published from time to time. And I'm adding a few more clauses and an amendment that are stated in the positive. 
That is to say, they are powers granted to Congress that are closely tied to our appropriation slash budget process. Why? Because Congress must first undertake certain procedures and processes in order for there to be any money in the Treasury for it to allocate via the appropriations process in the first instance. Specifically, I'm talking about Article 1, Section 2, Clause 3 of the Constitution, which states representatives and direct taxes shall be apportioned among the several states which may be included within the union according to their respective numbers, which shall be determined by adding the whole number of free persons including those bound to service for a term of years, indentured servants, that's what that means, and excluding Indians, our Native American first cousins who are not taxed, and three-fifths of other persons. Hmm, I wonder who they're talking about. That's why when I read this, I periodically get pissed off. But today, I steeled myself because I want you to know exactly what Article 1, Section 2, Clause 3 says. It says that representation in Congress and direct taxes shall be apportioned among the several states. And it, it gives you the recipe of who is considered, a, who will be taxed and who won't be taxed and who will be added to the power of free persons to give them more power in down in the southern part of the country. Okay. So also, there's another article that we need to know about, Article 1, Section 9, Clause 4 of the Constitution, which states no capitation, headcount capitation, that's what that means, or direct tax shall be laid unless in proportion to the census or enumerated herein before directed to be taken. Okay, so that means headcount, head direct tax, how they're supposed to be calculated. As such, these additional clauses of the Constitution dealing with direct tax are subject to the rule of apportionment, meaning Congress must set the total number, a total amount that it wants to raise by direct tax and then divide that number amongst the states according to each state's population and then aggregate that amount. Okay. However, the lack of clarity and confusion surrounding the meaning of direct tax and it tended to hamstring Congress's ability to raise the fund needed to run our nation and our national government ultimately led to the adoption of the 16th Amendment, which authorized Congress to impose taxes on income without regard to any direct rule of apportionment. So why am I tying these distinct sections of our founding document together? Um, I do so to lay the foundation to hopefully entice you folks out there who are listening to me in radio land or podcast land, to get in touch with your elected member of Congress, be she or he a Republican or a Democrat or an independent, and hammer them to have them take the three following steps. They need to make sure that the that they commence and complete the appropriations process such that our government can stay open past November 17th, which is just a 
couple weeks from now, <laughs> you know, or, or at least have uh, add on to the existing continuing res- resolution. You also, number two, have them focus on shoring up the Social Security Trust Fund, lest those of us who are baby boomers and our younger siblings will fall off in, fall off the unemployment rolls in the next 10 to 20 years and find ourselves entangled in an insufficiently funded retirement system. And, you know, finding ourselves in this quagmire in our declining years with insufficient Social Security income um, because our government is insufficiently funded and so there's no safety net for anyone and three to let you know and so you can let them know that we understand and understand what's going on with this case called war via united states and we want them to put in place a plan of action in case the supreme court rules as is anticipated now we'll get deeper in the weeds uh, on these issues when we come back but first we'll take a short break and i'll see you on the other side back to Selwyn's Law. Once again, your host, Selwyn Whitehead. Welcome back to Selwyn's Law as we continue our discussion on today's topic using the interconnection and interrelatedness of a few sections of our 236-year-old United States Constitution, including Article 1, Section 9, dealing with the congressional appropriations and budget process, along with Article 1, Section 2, Clause 3, and Article 1, uh, Section 9, Clause 4, of the Constitution dealing with Congress's taxing authority regarding direct taxes and uh, that are subject to the rule of apportionment, meaning Congress must set the total amount to be raised by direct taxation. And that part, because it was so confusing, got overruled by the 16th Amendment, which authorizes Congress to impose taxes on income without regard to the rule of apportionment. And again, three reasons. I want us to be as smart as the people that we pick up the phone and call our elected uh, officials, and we hope they're as smart as we are, and want them to know that we want the government to stay open past November 17th when it's about to shut down because the existing continuing resolution expires. We also want them to focus on shoring up the Social Security Trust Fund, lest those of us baby boomers fall off into this black hole of insufficiently funding funded Social Security system it's in our declining years when we don't have the ability to go out there and get another job. And three, to let them know that we know all about the case of Moore v. the United States, and we want them to put in place a plan to deal with the outcome of that case if the Supreme Court rules as is anticipated. Now, we've been discussing the need for Congress to commence and complete the appropriations process for some weeks now. And last week, we looked at, you know, some of my ideas about how we could shore up the Social Security Trust Fund. So this week, let's look at this very important tax case that this more of the United States that I keep talking about and why it's so important for Congress to get ready to deal with the implication um, because it impacts our ability to govern ourselves because it might impact our ability to raise sufficient funds, not just for Social Security, but for the other functions of our government. So what's up with this more of the United States? 
Well, here's a great analysis provided by the law firm Steptoe and Johnson LLP on its website located at steptoe.com. And I quote, the author says, on June 7, 2022, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals held in Moore v. United States that the mandatory repatriations tax, also known as the MRT, which is a one-time tax added under the Tax Cut and Jobs Act of uh, 2017, did not violate the United States Constitution's apportionment clause or the Fifth Amendment's due process clause. The Tax Cuts and Jobs Act created this mandatory uh, reappropriation or repatriations tax, which modified part of the tax code by classifying controlled foreign corporations, also known as CFCs, earnings after 1986 as income taxable in the year 2017. Now, the Moors, the plaintiffs, challenged the constitution of this section of the tax code's ability to permit taxation for their investment in a company, uh, an offshore company. They challenged the ability for the Internal Revenue Service to tax them. The Moors had invested in a company in India that provides small-scale farmers in India with affordable equipment. And they earned a profit each year since 2005. But the company never distributed any earnings to the Moors. And since the company's income was never distributed, the income was never taxable or had never been taxable to the Moors. That changed with the um, the Tax Cut and Jobs Act of 2017. Under that pr- particular provision, there is this new uh, mandatory re- repatriations tax, okay? And it l- taxes the years 1986 up until 2017, even if the income was never distributed to the holders of the stock. Now, under the revised vision of this part of the tax code, persons owning at least 10% in a foreign company are to be taxed at 15.5% of earnings or 8% otherwise. And that because the Tax Cuts and Job Act um, of 2017 was a truncation point in our tax code. And so if the government never put in place this repatriations tax, people who had invested in foreign um, companies prior to that time would never be taxed. The money would just continue to be rolled over in that foreign entity. So this was a way to make sure that uh, the government at least got some of the taxes that were due. And then henceforward, the taxes would be uh, due based on the realization. So that's what this is about. The Moors challenged the constitutionality of this part of the tax code's ability to permit the taxation of a foreign um, uh, controlled company 
the income between 1986 through 2017. The district court, the, the trial court, um, granted the government's motion to dismiss the complaint. And so the Morris case got booted. But then um, the Morris came back on appeal and it went to the Ninth Circuit. And the Ninth Circuit said or found that the, um, it, it agreed with the lower court. Uh, although the lower court, the trial court never did have a trial because the case got dismissed as part of the pre-trial summary judgment motion pleading action. So uh, the Ninth Circuit um, came to the conclusion that uh, the appropriation cause provides no capitation or direct tax shall be laid unless proportion of the census enumerated therein before the taxes are taken. I already shared with that. However, the Sixth Amendment exempted the apportionment and said that income could be derived from many, many sources. In effect, uh, the Ninth Circuit ruled against the Moors. And so the matter has been taken up. They appealed it again, and it's going to be heard by the Supreme Court. And oral arguments are going to be heard on December the 5th. And many are believing that the Supreme Court is going to agree with the Moors. And you say, well, what's this $15,500? That's no biggie. No, that's not the issue. <laughs> that's not the whole deal. In some, and, and let me state this again, the main issue in Moore revolves around whether the 16th Amendment to the Constitution requires for income to be realized for tax imposition um, on it. And if it falls within the scope of the amendment, the Moors argue that this transition tax is a direct tax and not an income tax and that it should not be protected by the 16th Amendment. They rely on a 1920 support Supreme Court decision in a case called Elsner v. McComber and which introduced the concept of realization to the 16th Amendment jurisprudence. So again, realization means if you make an investment and you leave it there and it rolls over, it's unrealized gain. But if you sell the stock, then it's realized. And it's the position of uh, Mr. and Mrs. Moore that they never realized the gain. However, there are other instances in our tax code where the government can tax you on unrealized gains, on unrealized sale of property. A gain, for example, if you buy investment property and you leave it there for a while and then you pull it out, depending on how short a time you leave it invested or how long you leave it invested is whether or not it's a short-term capital gain or it's a long-term capital gain, each of which have different um taxing parameters. And uh, for example, short-term capital gain is treated as regular income. A long-term capital gain is taxed on a lesser amount because it's looked as, as an investment. So what the Moors are getting at, and if they win, that's going to have implications for all of the other sections of the tax code that deal with taxation on the accumulation or the uh, improvement in an asset before it's realized. A prime example is partnership, uh, legal partnerships, for example. Um, although the part, 
and the partnerships are treated as pass-through entities, meaning that the partners in the venture, they the, the, the asset stays in the partnership, but the government can tax the individual partners on the percentage of the gain that was made each year, although the gain wasn't realized. And there are several other sections of the tax code that deal with unrealized gain for which the taxing authorities can tax people. So I said all that to say this, if more, if, if the if Supreme Court finds for the Moors, there's going to be manifest instances where our government might not be able to generate the income that we need to run our country. So we're going to leave it there for now, but as always in closing here at Selwyn's Law, we always want to stay on the right side of the law, including laws having to do with us utilizing the tools of our primary law, that is to say our Constitution, to help keep us informed and knowledgeable participants in the proper functions and functionings of the first branch of government, Congress, and holding it accountable for timely doing things that are needed to protect our interests as a whole. So until next time, take care. Bye for now. Thank you for taking the time to listen to Selwyn's Law. Remember, the law office of Selwyn Whitehead is a designated debt relief agency under the federal law and provides legal assistance to consumers seeking relief under the bankruptcy code. When it comes to your finances and your rights, seek no other than the law office of Selwyn Whitehead. Selwyn is your go-to finance attorney, specializing in estate planning, wealth management, bankruptcy, tax, and real estate law. In other words, Selwyn knows her way around the dollar, and your rights are protected by our laws. Protect your money. Know your rights. Partner with Selwyn Whitehead. For immediate assistance, or if you have questions, call 510-633-1276, 510-633-1276, or go to selwynwhitehead.com. The preceding paid program is sponsored by the law office of Selwyn Whitehead, who is solely responsible for its content. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.